First Peter chapter 2 has been rich for us as a church, and it certainly has been for me. Uh, if you're a teacher in life group, you know it's in your study that the greater work of life group teaching comes out. Not in your delivery, in your study, where you're praying and seeking God to take that truth and transform you so that it might be evident in those who are about to hear what you're going to express. And it's that way for me as well. At the conclusion of our service today, we'll be ordaining three deacons to serve Meadowbrook faithfully. And I'm going to just give a heads up to all of our ordained men here at Meadowbrook. If you're part of the faith family here, I invite you to join in that laying on of hands at the conclusion. I'll give you instruction where, when we're about to do that. But let's look to the ninth verse of 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race. It's an odd place to begin, isn't it, with a conjunction and not talk about what's happened previously. Uh, previously in the verses that we were studying last week, he talked about those who were unbelievers and they were stumbling over Christ, the cornerstone. And the stumble was not just in the present, but the stumble would actually cause them to fall on the hard rock of reality that Christ alone is Lord. And that God has been building everything in a spiritual house on Christ Jesus. And because they've rejected that, judgment belongs to them. So he begins verse 9, but you... You're different. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Man, if you got a hallelujah in you, that's a good place for it. What rich truth is there. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I want to focus on, on four aspects, particularly of verse 9. In Christ, consider your privileged membership in God's chosen race. Last week, we focused on verses 6, 7, and 8 and concentrated on Jesus as the cornerstone of the spiritual house that God is building. And in faith, God builds our lives on Jesus Christ. This place is a place of the gathered saints of God because they have been gathered unto Christ and now are connected together in the family of God. So we come into this place as signifying that God is building something way more than just Meadowbrook. He's building a church universal and way more than us collectively. He is building us individually, magnified by the billions of people around the world that are calling out to Jesus so in faith, God is building upon Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. But on the other hand, there are unbelievers who stumble over Christ, the stone, and then are crushed by him in judgment, holy judgment. Believers are destined to that, as we talked about last week, destined because they remain in their sin, remain in the judgment that is already upon them. Now, throughout the centuries, there has always been a rift between believers and unbelievers, Unbelievers, as you know, walk a broad path leading them to judgment, eternal judgment. 
Believers, on the other hand, have entered through a narrow gate and walk a narrow road. The gate is Christ himself, and the road is his way. And we are walking, navigating that journey with the Spirit of God, moving us to eternal reward for faith, rested totally on Jesus Christ. Unbelievers live deceived lives, rejecting Christ as the creator and sustainer and the Savior and the Lord. However, God has given to us believers an understanding of him, an understanding of truth. He has illuminated that for us. And so we receive that with gratitude and obedience and worship. And because of that, we will forever live with him in eternity. There's a vast schism between those who believe and those who do not believe. And that division is evident in our worldviews. Depending on which camp you're in, a believer or unbeliever, we think wildly different about things. Different about what justice is and life and what genuine love and care is and morality. We think incredibly differently than those who are unbelievers about marriage and family. We think differently about work and its purpose and possessions and money and church and truth and a whole bunch more. There's a wide schism between those who believe and those who do not believe. Now, though these days the differences seem to be more definitive and pronounced, there has always been a wide gap between the rejectors of Christ and the followers of Christ. So we should not be discouraged when the collision of worldviews comes to our families or our neighbors or our fellow Americans. Generationally, it has always been that way. And Jesus warned us that it would be that way. But the good news that Peter is talking about in this section is that those of us who are in faith, who have trusted Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone on which all spiritual truth is built, we are united. And I'm not just talking about having a common ideology. We are united in Christ Jesus. He has made us alive in him. He has immersed us in him. And we are immersed in truth with him. So the Lord has made us alive. And when he made us alive, he made us into a new race, a spiritual race of people that has never been before. And so that's what he's highlighting in the very first verse that I read for you today. Verse 9, you are a chosen race. I can't help but think about how the West is fracturing because of race, divisions, of what is skin color. And here's what Christ, by his spirit, is pronouncing it to us. You are different. You are united in one race. And it is in Christ Jesus. I don't see you as white or brown or black or yellow or red or whatever the colors are. I see you as a brother and sister in Jesus Christ. To God be the glory. We are in his chosen race. Of course, God has extended this great grace to us, and it's just highlighted throughout the New Testament. I mentioned this passage last week, but it bears repeating today, warrants repeating. Galatians chapter 3, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You've been brought into a family, is what he's saying. Verse 27 
For as many of you as were immersed into Christ, baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Now look, here's all the ways that we might be divided. Here's all the ways that people might title us. And what Paul is doing in this passage is he's redefining that. He's saying there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's no division there for those who are in faith in Christ Jesus. There's neither slave nor f or free, male or female, for you're all one in Christ. In any way the world wants to divide you, he's saying, oh no, Christ has united you. He has immersed you in this one truth. You are a chosen race. So God has extended this grace to us, wondrous grace that we sang about a moment ago, saving grace, saving us from sin and death and judgment. He cleansed us, erasing the sin debt that was held against us and imputed his righteousness to us. He regenerated us by immersing us into Christ, his death on the cross and his resurrection from the tomb. Once we were spiritually born again, God granted to us a heavenly citizenship. And he became our father. Jesus became our brother. So we should consider the significance of what it means to be in God's chosen race. For example, we have assurance and hope that reaches well beyond this temporal life we're living. We have an eternal destiny that has been established by Christ himself and guaranteed by his Holy Spirit. We have community of believers around the world. Wherever you go, God has placed family there so that you might be connected to them. We have a merciful, just, and loving, benevolent sovereign. All of this comes because we are part of one kingdom and one race. And even as the world is tense and divided and hostile, Christians should take stock that we have one unified race by being immersed in faith in Christ Jesus. Now, we should not only embrace that reality, we should protect that reality. We are unified and we must pursue unity at all times. And I'd say at most all cost, protecting what God has given us in Christ. We are one. But now look at the second aspect of this verse. In Christ, consider your honored position as royal priest. You didn't know you were coming into royalty today, did you? Uh, yeah, everybody in here whose faith is in Christ, he's saying, you are a royal priest. Uh, what did you do to earn that? Nothing. It's all because of God's great grace. It comes by being connected to the one who is the king of the universe. It comes by being immersed into the one who is the high priest, Christ Jesus himself. And because you are immersed into him, you are a royal priest. So God has declared that to be. In other words, the spiritual house that God is building is a royal house where people who dwell within with the Holy Spirit are royalty those are magnificent words that he's talking about you and me who are in faith. Jesus, the divine king and priest, has deemed us to be royal priests. Now, as priests, we serve the king by having access to his holy presence, into which we offer spiritual sacrifices, namely our praise and worship. 
So when we gather together on Sunday mornings and we have a musical set that has been prayed about and planned for and rehearsed, ready to be presented to Christ himself along with you, you come into this place as royal priests recognizing that your responsibility in a holy convocation is to serve him through praise and worship. And so we don't hold back in that. You say, well, I didn't feel like it today. Your feelings have nothing to do with it. It is your responsibility as a royal priest to worship Christ in his presence, to praise him. Oh, I'm in the darkest days of my life. So was David in the 63rd Psalm, but he praised the Lord. His soul was thirsty to praise the Lord. The happenings in his life did not hold back his praise and worship. Why? Because he viewed himself in that light as a priest before the Lord, making his offering of praise and worship. And it's not just in the Holy Convocations on Sunday morning. It is our life to be lived in an expression of praise and worship unto the Lord. We worship him in his presence. So we're grateful that God gives us the opportunity to do that. The second aspect of being a royal priest is that we rule with the king in his kingdom. Now that is, that's a big statement to kind of take in and grab hold of. But I, I want to take you way out in the millennial kingdom where Christ will rule and reign on the earth. We will reign with him and we will rule with him. But it's not just about a millennial kingdom. He has given us authority to rule today. And so he has called us to be royal, royal priest who rule in the authority of the sovereign king of the universe so consider yourselves as royal priest and see how that might change the way you carry yourself if you consider yourself on monday morning as a royal priest as god has declared you to be then the way you speak to others will be different and the way you worship god throughout the day in your workplace or in your home, or in the community, will be different because you see yourself as a royal priest. The way you worship, the way you pray, the way you serve the kingdom of God, and the way you love and serve others changes when you view yourself rightly as a royal priest. So no wonder Peter is sounding the alarm for us. You are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood consider the truths there and then look at the third aspects It's in your handout in Christ consider your distinguished call to be holy people to be holy people or a holy nation the word in the original language there is ethnos uh, and it is often translated as a multitude it's a people with the same nature uh, it could be translated tribe nation, a people group, as we might call uh, gathered folks today. He's saying that's what you are. Like the attributes of a holy race and a royal priesthood allude to Israel and what God had provided for them or promised to them if they would yet follow his covenant with them, so holy nation alludes to them. They were called uniquely by God. And God gave this opportunity to Israel to be a holy nation. What does that mean? To be a holy nation, a holy people. Well, God had desired Israel 
to be separated from the sinful pagan world and nations around them. He wanted them to be unique, different from those who are worshiping falsely and, and rebellious towards God. He called them to be separated from the world and put connected to him, I should say. Separated from the world and set apart unto God. And if you want a real simple defining way for holiness, it's that. Holiness is being separated from the things of the world and set apart unto the things of God. So as a holy nation, Israel was called out of the nations of sinfulness and false worship and to obedience and worship to the one true God. Now believers are holy. We have been made holy, declared holy, and have a nature of holiness, which means believers are separated from the world and its sinfulness and set apart unto God and his holiness. So in their obedience, Israel forfeited the call of God to be a chosen race, to be a holy people, and to be a nation unto him, a holy nation. But now by faith, God has afforded us those distinguished privileges and blessings Listen, Meadowbrook, I want you to hear this. You are a holy people. You are a holy people, which means by Christ you have been separated from the world and set apart unto God. And because of that, everything changes. Now, this is done in a very positional way. God has declared it to be so positionally we are holy. And practically, the Spirit of God is making us more and more like Christ. In a theological term, that is sanctifying us, which means to be made holy. So positionally, we are holy. And practically, the Spirit of God is shaping us in our holiness to be more and more like Jesus Christ. So when he says to us, to Meadowbrook, individually and collectively, you are holy He's speaking about what Christ has already provided and is positionally true and what the Spirit of God is continuing to shape in us. And in doing so, our motives and our ambitions, our attitudes and our ethics reflect that truth. And when they don't reflect that truth, then we have walked away from truth. And the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of truth, will point that out. That's called conviction. And he will call us to be more plumb with God's word and God's truth for us, calling us back to this life of holiness. Our language, the words we say and the manner in which we say them ought to reflect the fact that we are holy people. Have you noticed how the language of the world has degraded have you noticed the vulgarity of the world and its sinfulness? You know what I've noticed? Many a Christian are following suit in that degraded vernacular. I want you to hear me. I'm not preaching at you. I'm lifting you up with truth. God says you are a holy people. You have been separated out of the vulgarity of the world and set apart unto the holiness of Jesus Christ. 
And if the words that you are speaking in your anger or in, in your joking don't match the words that you think will come out of the mouth of Jesus, you are distant from him. And he says, let me write you to this holy truth. You are my people. Reflect me well. Here's the way James says it. With the tongue we bless the Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessings and cursing. My brother, these things ought not be so. You know why? James is saying to the church, you are a holy people. Let it be evident that you believe that truth. You live it out. For believers, as holy people, all things are sacred. There is nothing, there is nothing that is secular you say, well, my job, it's a secular job. Oh, no, 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 you're a holy people. Your job is not secular. Your job is sacred. All that you do and all that I do is holy unto the Lord. Why? Because we are connected to holy Christ. Immersed into him, a holy people. So everything that we do and participate in as a church or as individuals, they are for God's glory and unto him. Our time, our resources, our influence all reflect the understanding that we have of being God's holy people. You say, well, I'm, I'm not doing too well in time and resources and influence or in my mouth or whatever. I'm, I'm not acting very holy. You know why? Because you've dis disregarded that truth. Don't try to correct your sin press into the truth press into christ lord i trust you that you are immersing me in the spirit's holy work and christ has positionally made me holy declared it to be so oh god i want to reflect that help me to do so help me to do so and when you have those moments of stumbling and falling and sinning and falling short hear the spirit he will call you to agree that that's sin and he'll call you back to the walk of holiness you're a holy people and then finally in christ consider your significance and security as god's possession and that's that's a good statement after what we just talked about that you and i who are in christ are significant and we're secure as god's possession so god has purchased every believer unto his possession he paid the price, and it was an ultimate price, wasn't it? It was the price of the life and the blood of his beloved son, Jesus. He has paid for us. I remind myself and others on our staff and those who are around uh, throughout the week, oh, this church belongs to Jesus. He bought it with his own blood. Uh, he can care for it. He'll tend to it. It belongs to him. I, I fully trust in that, that we are his possession. Paul informs his readers that Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, Titus 2.14. Now think for a moment about how much God cherishes you. And you might say, well, I'm not sure how much God cherishes me. I'm not sure I'm doing things that are worthy of being cherished. Oh, you got it all the wrong direction there. You're thinking in the wrong way. Think for a minute, consider for a moment about how much God cherishes you and how you can know that is because of the price that he paid to purchase you. Amen. Man, does he ever cherish us. 
He was willing to give his only begotten son to purchase us unto himself. Knowing that God has made such an investment, think about the significance of the plans and the purposes that he has for you. You say, my life just seems meager. Oh man, God has paid an ultimate price for you, the blood and life of his own son, so that you might satisfy and fulfill the purposes that he has for you. He has bought you with the intention of you being part of his kingdom work. Your life matters. How do I know your life matters? Because God purchased you for what he wants to do through you. Your life matters. Ponder for a moment the care and the protection that God has for you. If he's made such a valuable prized possession, then he will protect you. Now note Peter's conclusive words in today's passage. He says, of all that, it is so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. All that that we ought to be considering, all that that is so important for you and me to know that we're a chosen race, a royal a royal priest, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, all of that is important so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, there's things that you and I know that nobody else knows. There's things that you and I are experiencing in Christ that nobody else is experiencing. As believers, there might be a real expanse between us and unbelievers in worldview and in life choices and in eternal destiny but they need to know about the excellencies of God and who else but you and me who have been made alive in Christ should tell them let it be that we proclaim the excellencies of Christ that word is unique in fact it's only used here in the New Testament, that, that alone causes it to stand out. It, it literally means to call forth, to proclaim, to declare something that is not known, to make it praiseworthy by proclaiming it, to tell somebody something that is otherwise unknown. And that makes this word unique because what he is saying is, believers, only you know this. Only you know God like this. And that ought to be declared to all the world that needs to know about his excellencies. Oh, they're worthy of praise, aren't they? That's the reason why we come into this place and we sing the attributes of God. We sing of his holiness, of his justice, of his righteousness, of his love, of his mercy, of his care, his provision. We sing on and on and on about the characteristics of God. You know why? Because we are lifting up those excellencies of God. We're letting the world know. Anybody who's willing to hear in this room, those on the radio, those on the streaming service, we're letting them know about God's excellence. It makes me, when I consider these things, it makes me want to praise God. In song, yes, but in words to others as well. Just declare it. Throughout your day, throughout the work, throughout your play, at the gym, at the shopping center, declare the excellencies of God. When you see them, declare them. Glorify God in that. Now would you pause with me and just spend a moment in prayer. Oh, Father, we 
can't thank you enough for your great love that was demonstrated that while we were sinners, Christ came and died for us. We can't thank you enough for rescuing us from our sin and the death which was ours and the justice that was coming against us and the judgment that would fall on us for all eternity. We can't help but stop and say thank you for loving, rescuing us, providing for us, washing us of our filth, cleansing us of our sin, imputing in us the righteousness of Christ, and dwelling in us by the nature of holiness, the Spirit himself dwelling within us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Lord, as we consider these things, we just have to echo back the words about how great you are, how marvelous you are. And Lord, I ask that you would help us by your spirit to declare it in song and praise and worship and to people in public proclamation. May the excellencies that belong to you be known because people like us talk about them, extol them to others, lift them up. 